But I think what we have to ask is what are the sort of the limits in which we make a conversation about when is a good technology deployment worthy of our you know, subscription or not. And, and we don't have many places in which we can have that conversation. And, and the reason we need to have it is that I argue that the transhumanist impulse is, is a very strange one because it rests on a logic, I mean, a couple of logics, but one of them as applied to people is that we so want to transform the human being so they are no longer recognizably human, at which point you ask, why are we doing this in the first place? Mm. Because what is planned is not just the obsolescence of humans, but the erasure of humans into some yet to be sort of discovered, engineered being, whatever that would be. And it's the same with the transhumanist impulse that wants to terraform other planets, which is it, it, it also rests on a really confused logic because it assumes that by going somewhere else, life will suddenly be better without realizing that the somewhere else is not at, at all in any way sort of biologically, physiologically, biochemically suited for a human being's existence. And so to think that we're going to go somewhere else, terraform a planet in ways we can't even begin to understand and live better when we can't live well on a planet that is exactly tuned for our flourishing, we're deeply confused. And so you know, putting our hope in someone like Elon Musk as sort of the prototypical techno guy who's going to save us is just deeply, deeply troubling. And, and I wanted to call attention to that what I think is a really misconstrued logic that underpins both the effort to perfect human beings and to, to go to some other planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's so strange to think, you know, that our technologies are causing so many problems and people think, Oh, then more technology. Yeah. Like, well, that's you're kind of doubling down on that there. And maybe, maybe it'd be good to find another way or think about limits. I especially appreciate you saying, you know, that you want to keep indoor plumbing and stuff like that. Right. But sometimes that is, as soon as you critique this kind of technophilia, then people say, oh, so you just want us to go back to, you know, before we had electricity and stuff right. like that. You're like, no, there's, there's some kind of enough that we need to find some kind of limits. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a really good word, that word enough. And, and here too, I would say, we don't have many forums in which as communities of people, we can talk about what that is, right? When when have people reached enough? Mm-hmm. Because here is the, the startling thing. If you imagine talking to somebody who lived 100 years ago, for instance, they would find our lives unimaginable because of the many comforts and conveniences it affords. And and the question would be, why are we still not satisfied? And I think the, the best way to make sense of this historically is to say that human beings are the kinds of beings that compare themselves to others. And whenever you start that game, you always find someone who's doing more, has more, looks better, whatever. And so you're perpetually dissatisfied. And, and that, that's a recipe for disaster. And I think this is why in, in Jewish and Christian traditions in particular, uh, it's so important to keep this idea of the Sabbath in our minds. Because the Sabbath is, is precisely that regular time where people ask about what they have, why they should celebrate what they have. It's also why practices of thanksgiving 
are so important. Mm-hmm. And here, indigenous folks have so much to teach us about the need to regularly reflect as a community about the many ways in which our, our places, our habitats, our communities, our sources of our livelihood that are a blessing. Doesn't mean they're not difficult or that they can't be bothersome and disagreeable even, but nonetheless, we can't live without them. And so I think practices of Thanksgiving and, and Sabbath are really, really vital at this very moment when we have not just lost the brakes, but have assumed that stepping on the accelerator will solve every problem. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's really great. I've heard people you know, refer to the idea of uh, the Sabbath year as well and the Jubilee year. And I know right. part of that also involves, you know, forgiveness of debt. Yeah. And that seems, um, that's such a massive problem uh, yeah. across, you know, all the whole planet right now, countries in debt, individuals in debt. Uh, so then it seems like there's a pretty serious critique of, of capitalism in what you're saying as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And here, you know, you're bringing up debt is, I think, so, so important because I think for many people today, it's impossible to imagine a world apart from the debt imaginary. Yeah. Right? We're always in, in a financial hole with respect to somebody else. And it's a truly sinister phenomenon. So, for instance, if you think about how imperial gestures by countries over the last 200 years or so have raped and pillaged whole continents and then put them in debt yeah. and then required these communities of people to service the debt rather than take care of their own communities, to take care of their own habitats, it, it's, it's not just sinister, it's deeply evil. Yeah. And, and most everybody knows that these countries are not in a position where they're ever going to pay off their debts. And it's not as though these countries are expecting that this debt will somehow alleviate their own national problems. But that debt can't be forgiven because of some crazy logic that assumes that this is the world that we live in, where you always pay your debts, when the Sabbath and the Jubilee are, are the reminder that nobody should be in a condition of desperation or misery. Nobody should be in a position that they can profit off of another person's misery or misfortune, which is also why usury is such a problematic practice in religious traditions. So I think think you're raising a, a really, really important point in which now money is the determining factor, not just for how we live in the world, but what we think about the world, what we think about each other, and what we think about our obligations, because people have obligations. They just do, because we're constantly depending on what other people can do to help us to live. But an obligation is very different than a financial debt. Yeah. And being able to distinguish those two things is really important, because one's a moral economy, and one's a financial economy. And the moral economy, which is devoted to developing relationships, is quite different than a monetary economy, which is about contracts and legality and things of that sort. Mm, Nice. That's a good distinction. Yeah. And so then the moral economy, like paying attention to that would be a solution to the problem of the financial economy run amok. Exactly. I mean, think here about how so many traditional or indigenous cultures, when they operate in a moral economy, it's an economy that's based on sharing and gift giving. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say there isn't money in them, right? Gift economies often had money associated with them and transactions too. Mm -hmm. But the difference is that 
the relationships are governed by the sense that we all need each other. And so in the damaging of others, we also always damage ourselves. Right? And of course, that's something the capitalist economy doesn't understand at all, yeah. because it's going through this world, through all of our communities, doing tremendous damage to people and places. And in the process, not seeing how this is undermining the very viability of the future. Yeah. Seems like such a simple point to say, like, have, has anybody thought about sharing? <laughs> we're like, no. We were that's... taught that in kindergarten, right? <laughs> yeah, right. It's a kindergarten lesson. <laughs>